And the sermon series we're doing is called Meals with Jesus, Meals with Jesus. And uh, I don't know um, what place meals have in your consciousness or in your history. Um, For most people, it depends what kind of meal. Like, I mean, if you go to, you know, Chick-fil-A, that's one sort of experience. Um, If you go to Taco Bell, that's another sort of experience. If you go to Waffle House, elevated just a little bit, you know, different experience. There's something different about certain meals where you sit down with family and close friends in someone's home around a table. And, and sometimes um, when you think about even that vision of sitting around the table with family and friends, um, there's really sort of a deep longing that awakens within you. Um, maybe it's a deep longing for home or a deep longing for, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. Everyone gathered around this table eating meals together. Um, it's funny, I think back to my own childhood growing up in um, Pensacola, Florida. It's where my mom's family was from. And I remember vividly uh, being, you know, just a little guy, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and being in my great-grandmother's house, Ma. It was Ma and Pa. And uh, I just remember sort of the house was filled with people, and it was filled with noise, and people spilled out of the living room out onto the front porch of this old home in Pensacola, Florida. And in the kitchen um, were Ma and Monkey and uh, you know, various other uh, women from um, that side of the family. And they were in there, and there were always these two big stainless steel pots that were on the stove, and pretty sure they were both bubbling with oil, and one probably had fried okra, the other one had fried fish, the other one had fried something else, and I don't know what else was fried in the other one. And there was cornbread, and there were these beans that they called paw beans, because my grandfather's name Paul, great-grandfather's name Paul. I don't know what kind of beans they really were. And, uh, but I just remember as a kid, you know, that all this food you know, was being prepared, and we'd sit down, you know, around this huge table, and then the people that didn't fit at the table would sort of spread out throughout the house and on the front porch. But it was just this, it was this sort of, this, this experience, again, of wholeness and, and, and of completeness, where everything was just sort of right, you know what I mean? And, uh, and it's funny, I've even told sort of people about that experience, and I get teared up even thinking about it because it's it was really more than just a meal right just and and some of you have experience you know what i'm talking about you know that longing for home right the longing for life sort of is supposed to be this way right it's not supposed to be broken we're supposed to be together eating together so that's why we're doing this uh, series called meals with jesus there are any number of different wonderful things that happen throughout jesus ministry and so many of them happened sitting around a table, hanging out with family, hanging out with friends, and we're just going to jump into those over the next four weeks. Let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you that um, you kindly and gently uh, lay us out on the autopsy table, and you kindly and gently open us up, and you reveal to us where we are broken, where we were rebellious, where we're sinful, where we're cancerous. And Father, I pray today that we would, um, that we would lie still knowing um, that you love us um, and that your son Jesus is for us. I pray that we would uh, hear your word today and that we would be changed, not just in the way that we think, but even in the way that we feel. We pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, I grew up as a child of the 80s. Um, I had Chuck Taylors all the way back then. I had Peg Jeans. 
I had sweaters that were really huge because that's what Bill Cosby did on the Cosby show and that influenced an entire generation of sweater wearing. And I watched, you know, uh, all the 1980s movies, even when I shouldn't have watched them. Um, I don't know how that happened in my home, but it did. And one of the movies that I ended up watching was one called Sixteen Candles. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this movie, but it's Molly Ringwald was in one of the, the sort of the main character in it. And it's this really, um, I don't recommend it, by the way. Um, you can watch it, it's up to you, but I don't recommend it. But it does have this great ending scene. And uh, the movie, Sixteen Candles, is basically about this, um, this young girl. She's turning 16. Her name is Samantha in the movie. But the problem is, she's not one of the cool kids. She's not one of the popular kids. And uh, the movie goes out of its way to sort of portray her that way. Not only is she not sort of cool, not popular, she's a little bit awkward. And on top of that, the movie begins, and it's her birthday, but everybody has forgotten that it's her birthday. Her family has forgotten her birth- that it's her birthday. Her friends have forgotten that it's her-, her birthday. I mean, she just is sort of left out of everything, and she is forgotten, right? That's sort of the beginning of the movie. Well, as the movie progresses, you find out that she's got this crush on this guy named Jake, who's this handsome, athletic guy who happens to be dating the prom queen and, like, the captain of the cheerleading squad. And as the movie progresses, all this stuff happens, and and what you find is that in the movie, what ends up happening is that Jake ends up choosing Samantha, even though she's undeserving, at least by worldly standards. I'm going to go ahead and play this little clip, and you're going to see the ending scene of the movie where she's chosen. I'm supposed to. Can I call you later? Sure. I mean, no. No, I can't call you later? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not going to the reception. So you've just seen every 1980s 
teen romance movie that has ever been made. It's exactly the same formula. And part of the reason that that's the formula of all of those romances is, um, is honestly because that, that romance is stamped upon our human hearts, right? I mean, it's something that resonates within us. There's, there's, there's a piece of us that resonates with the idea of God choosing us even though we are unrighteous, even though we're not deserving, right? That's just a piece of that story. I don't know how many of you guys, you know, for whom that, that resonates deeply with um, now, but as you get older, it will resonate more and more because it really is a picture of the gospel. The reason we use it this morning is because it's one of the sort of upside down, inside out ways in which Jesus shocked everyone when he came to earth. Now we're in Luke chapter five here. And in Luke chapter five, at the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus calls uh, several of the disciples to come and follow him. And then after that section of verses, he calls, um, he's actually walking through a city and a leper comes up to him and Jesus lays his hand on this leper and he heals him. And of course, that's shocking because that's something that, you know, only God can heal people. Well, then what else is sort of shocking following that is he's teaching in this upper room and it's so crowded that there are these guys who have a friend who's a paraplegic and they can't get in to see Jesus. And so they go up under the roof of the house and they take a part of the roof of the house and they drop their friend through who's their paraplegic. And what's really amazing is that God, that then Jesus heals this paraplegic, but even more What's amazing is that Jesus forgives this man who's a paraplegic, right? And again, what happens is the Pharisees are like, what? That's, that's, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins, right? And amazingly, they're, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. And then we see that what happens next is this passage in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 31 And what Jesus does is he makes this point clear from the movie clip that, uh, that he came not to call people who were deserving, but he came to call people who were undeserving. Let's begin with verse 27. Verse 27 says this, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. So after this, right, that's after healing and forgiving the paralytic. Jesus and his 11 disciples and Surely some others were walking along the Sea of Galilee. They were in a town called Capernaum. And he came upon a tax collector's booth. The tax collector at the booth was a man named Levi, who you're familiar with, but by a different name. He was a Jewish tax collector. Now, you got to understand, tax collectors were already hated. They were hated by the Jews because they were conspiring with the Romans, right? And so they were traitors. And so, uh, the, you know, the fellow Jews hated, hated them because they were taxing their own people, right? So they were... They were hated as traitors. Not only that, but the Romans didn't even like the Jewish tax collectors because they thought they were traitors too. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were considered to be dishonest. Not only that, but they were considered to be greedy. They typically skimmed off the top in order to make money. And so basically tax collectors like Levi were hated by everybody. They were hated by their countrymen. They were hated by the Romans. They probably were disowned by their family and friends, right? They had probably lost every bit of reputation they once had, but they had traded it all in uh, for something that that wealth offered, right? They were corrupt. They were traitors. Nobody liked them. And for all this, they were hated. And yet Jesus walks up to this tax collector, Levi, and says, follow me. This would have shocked everyone, right? It would have shocked the, uh, the disciples. It would have shocked the Pharisees. 
And honestly, it would have shocked the crowds, and it may be shocked Levi most of all. Verse 28 says this, And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So imagine Levi, right, this man, this Jewish tax collector, sitting at his tax collector's booth. He sees Jesus coming his way. Word's probably already gotten out about Jesus, and surely Levi is curious about who this Jesus is. And as Jesus makes his way closer and closer, crowd in tow, following him, Levi realizes that Jesus is coming towards him. Now, Levi knows who Levi is, that he's an outcast, that he is a traitor, that he's unclean, and he knows who Jesus is, that he's a rabbi, right, that he's a rock star, that he's popular. He knows all of that. And so you can imagine that as Jesus gets closer and closer to Levi, you can just imagine him sort of shrinking back, making himself smaller. But Jesus makes a beeline right for him, walks up to him and says, follow me. And we're told that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now that's, whether you know it or not, that's a remarkable decision. The fishermen who Jesus had called to follow him, they had left their jobs, but it's a little bit easier to go back to that life. You just kind of go back to fishing again. Levi, however, couldn't just walk back into his old position if this whole Jesus thing didn't work out. It was a lot harder. Something, however, made it possible for Levi to walk away. In a sense, he'd already left everything once, right, in order to, to be a tax collector, right? He'd already left probably family who disowned him. He probably already left friends who turned their back on him when he made this decision. He'd sort of already left all the religious people. He'd already left everything once when he signed up. Now, the text doesn't say, but I would imagine, I'd guess, that Levi discovered what all wealthy people discover eventually, and that's that money cannot satisfy our deepest longings. And so when Jesus came up and said, hey, follow me, Levi was like, I'm in. And he got up and followed him. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So when we want to celebrate something in our culture, right, what do we do? We throw a party, and there's always food, right? Whether it's a college graduation or a high school graduation, a wedding or a birthday, you celebrate with a big meal. And we're told here that after Jesus calls Levi to follow him, that Levi throws him a party, Right, and not just any party. If you look, it says that he throws him a great banquet. And so again, just close your eyes for a minute and think about this banquet. There's food, there's wine, there's fruit, there's bread, there's probably music, there's laughter. I mean, it's a, it's a feast and people, right? There are people everywhere. And it's interesting, it says a large crowd, but the word there means a throng of people. Like it's packed. So there's all this food, there are all these people, but they're not just any people. These are Levi's friends, right? Well, who are the friends of a tax collector, right? I mean, it's probably not many of his family members. It's probably not many religious people. In fact, what we're told in a few uh, moments, the Pharisees called these other people sinners. And so, I mean, it, it could have been prostitutes, right? It could have been people that charged too much money. It could have been people that were just the outcasts of society. And so here they are in the midst of this great, great banquet. And the Pharisees, these people, with these people who the Pharisees have called sinners, and in the midst of the throng is Jesus, eating and drinking, fellowshipping, at a feast, a great banquet, a party, and he's surrounded by all of these sinners, right? U2, uh, sorry, uh, Bono, the lead singer of U2, 
back in the mid-90s, had a great quote, and he said this. He said, if Jesus were to come back to earth today, you'd find him in a gay bar in San Francisco, right? Now, back then, so back in the, the you know, early to mid-90s, that was sort of the group that would have been considered sort of the outcasts of society. And so part of what Bono was doing is he was nailing exactly what was happening here with Jesus, that Jesus would have said, hey, I'm going to go to the people who are the outcasts in this society, and I'm going to love on them. I'm going to dine with them, right? It would have been shocking to see him sitting there amongst all of these people. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect, that is the Pharisaical sect, complained to his disciples. That means that word complained is murmured. Uh, They complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So before we talk about the Pharisees really quickly, let's come back to the disciples for a second. These guys were actually pretty religious in their own right. The Pharisees were hyper-religious. But the first guys that Jesus called were very religious Jewish men. So can you imagine how they would have felt in the midst of sort of this throng of people, these sinners, these tax collectors, right? They probably would have felt just a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. In fact, I can kind of imagine Peter sort of, you know, standing over in the corner and he's thinking, what am I going to tell my wife when she hears that I was at this party with tax collectors and sinners and people drinking too much and prostitutes? What am I going to tell my wife? You know, imagine Simon the Zealot. If you guys remember, the Zealots actually were committed to trying to overthrow the Roman government by force, right? And so Simon the Zealot is in this party, this great banquet, rubbing elbows with people who he probably wanted to kill, right? They were probably on his hit list. And so he's in there. Thomas may have been the only person who felt somewhat comfortable, right, doubting Thomas. He might have been like, whatever. Anyway. But again, most of them would have been like sweating profusely and trying to hide. They probably would have been thinking, what am I doing here? And that makes the Pharisees' question to them that much more uncomfortable. Why, they say, do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And you can just imagine that Peter is getting ready to answer by saying, Jesus, Jesus made us do it, right? We're just following Jesus. They're just blaming him. But before Peter can pin the blame on Jesus, Jesus steps in and covers them with his strength. Verse 31 says, Jesus answered them, that is the Pharisees. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Wow, right? That's actually a pretty fantastic statement. And not only was it fantastic, but it was absolutely true. It just sort of cut through everything and got to the heart of the matter. The Pharisees had just put the disciples in a really awkward position. And and I don't think the Pharisees were actually really all that curious about the disciples' motives. Rather, I think the question was intended to condemn, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's the question that gets asked in all of those John Hughes 1980s films, right? There's always the friend of the guy who's pursuing the sort of girl that's the outcast, and his rich buddy who drives the convertible 1982 Mercedes says, what are you doing, right? You should be with the captain of the cheerleading squad. But again, the people asking the disciples these questions, these, these were the religious leaders. 
These were the John Hugginses and the Josh Tolmans and the Andrew McCluskeys and the Tom Combs and the John Parkers and the Tamara Rulands and the Cabells and the Emily Kalins. These are all the religious people, right? And it would have been actually pretty logical for the disciples to wilt under that kind of pressure. And so Jesus enters, enters in and protects his new disciples. He shields them, he covers them in their weakness with his strength stepping between them and the Pharisees, and he answers, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is not only rebuking the Pharisees and protecting the disciples, however, he's also painting a picture for both of why he's come to earth and what he's going to do by using this analogy of a doctor entering into a room full of sick people in order to bring them healing, right? Great little story, great vignette. What do we do do with it? What do we do with all these things? So the first thing I think we do with this story is that we remember that we are the sinners, right? There's There's no us versus them in which we're the us. It's just them. But the reason I make this point is because as I was sort of working on this all this week and sort of coming up with all this, On around Thursday afternoon, I realized that all week long that I'd been working on this, I literally had been thinking of, if I was in that room, I'd sort of been picturing all the sinners over there and me over here. Does that make sense? Like, I was viewing myself as us, right? Me and Jesus, we're the good ones. Those are all the bad people over there. But I totally and completely missed the point. I've got a good friend who says we have an amazing capacity for self-deception. And one of the ways in which we deceive ourselves is that we think that we're somehow good enough via not cussing too much or drinking too much or doing the enough right things that will be acceptable to God, but we forget that we are the sinners in this story, right? There's no us versus them. We're all them. Every single one of us is them. That's why Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Every one of us has not believed that God is good, Every one of us has not believed that he is for us. Every one of us has not believed that he can be trusted. And so every single one of us have sort of learned to live these false lives, trying to get what we want and avoid what we don't want by creating this this untruthful self. And that's part of what Jesus realized here. And that's part of the reason that he needs us to recognize that we're the sinners because it's only the people who recognize that they're sick that can actually receive the healing that they need. That's number one, we are the sinners. Number two, we need to understand that Jesus took our sin upon himself. Joel talked about it this morning. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He didn't just come to heal us by sort of waving a magic wand. He came to take our sickness into himself and to give us his righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus didn't come to just deliver medicine. He came to take on our sin and to give us his righteousness. There's a movie that came out in 1999 called The Green Mile. I do recommend this movie. <clears throat> and in it, there is this huge man named John Coffey, which he says, coffee like the drink, but spelled different. <clears throat> and he's got this, uh, this gift that has been given to him by God And it's where he can take someone else's sickness, right, cancer or any other thing, and he can actually breathe it out of them into himself. 
at great cost to himself. But that's what Jesus came to do. That's what happens with doctors. Doctors enter into a room in order to bring healing, knowing that they will actually expose themselves to sickness. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took our sin upon himself and was punished in our place at great cost to himself. Finally, I think the last thing we see from this story, and there are lots more that we could talk about, is that when Jesus calls us, the sinners, the undeserving, that we're given a new name, right? Some of you already knew this because you know the story and you know the Bible really well. Uh, But this man named Levi, who Jesus walked up to in Capernaum and said, hey, I want you to come and follow me, um, after being called, became the man that we know as Matthew, the guy that wrote the first gospel. And so what we see is that when we are called to follow Jesus, when we're invited to that meal, invited to dine with him, when we're invited into fellowship with him and we accept the healing that he offers us, that we're given a new name. And that new name is daughter or that new name is son. It's a new identity. It's a new life that God calls us to. Now, what's amazing is that when we receive that new identity, that new calling and that new life, it changes everything. It did For Levi, he had been wealthy. He had had probably all this wonderful stuff that wealth could afford, but it wasn't enough. It didn't fill him up. What ultimately filled him up was being called into a relationship with Jesus, so much so that church history records that Matthew died as a martyr in Ethiopia after calling the king of Ethiopia to repentance of all things. Right When we're called into this relationship with God through Jesus, We're given a new name, a new life, new priorities, new proximities with all of these people. And we're energized to walk with God, to know him, and to trust his son Jesus as our savior and our friend. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of scripture. We thank you for this great picture of a meal uh, of Jesus, not only with Levi, but with all these sinners. And Father, I pray that as we think about this story um, today or this week when we read it again in the future, I pray, Father, that we would count ourselves among those sinners, those traitors, those rebels, those immoral people, Father. And I pray that as we remember that that's who we have been, that we would at the same time, we would remember that for those of us who have repented and turned to you, that we have been given a new name, and we've been given even a new record and a new life. And so, Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things today. Amen.